Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, uh, episode 15. So, uh, special thanks to everybody who has uh, uh, been emailing me. Uh, it's always nice to uh, get feedback from uh, listeners. Uh, also, thanks to everybody who has been voting for the show, for uh, the podcast awards. Uh, there are two nights left, and uh, just a reminder that you can vote uh, once a day. So, uh, this is going up on Sunday. So uh, you can vote today and tomorrow, and uh, then that will be it. So, um, as I said before, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I'm trying to be realistic about it. I, I don't expect to win. Um, I was checking out the uh, the competition the other day, and I realized, like, oh man, uh, I, I just don't see it. Um, it. It's it's amazing that I was nominated. I I, I love that I was. Uh, it was really exciting, but uh, but I think I may wind up just having to be happy with that. But uh, but, you know, not to discourage you from voting, head on over there, and uh, uh, if you haven't done it yet, you go to podcastawards.com, uh, scroll on down to the uh, Religion Inspiration section, click on More Than One Lesson, scroll down a little further, and then you write your name and your email address. Uh, they will email you uh, a verification notice. You click on that to, to verify that you, that you voted, and, uh, and you're done. So, uh, yeah, so do that and uh, help out the show. Uh, thank you uh, very much for that. A uh, reminder that you can follow me on Twitter, at uh, More Lessons. Um, and then there are, uh, as always, uh, several blogs, uh, several new blogs available on the website, morethanonelesson.com, uh, as well as a forum in which you can uh, discuss uh, topics that I brought up on the show um, or just, you know, ask questions of your uh, fellow listeners. Uh, and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I think that covers. Uh, I think that covers everything. Um, so let's just go ahead and uh, and get into it. Uh, so today we are going to be talking about a movie that I watched uh, really just uh, just a few days ago, um, but it had such an impact on me that I, uh, I I I felt like I had to talk about it. Um, but I realize. Very few people have seen it. In fact, uh, both the movies that I'll be talking about today, uh, I realize uh, not many people have seen. Um, so I, I'll go ahead and say that uh, the movies I'm going to be talking about, the first one uh, came out last year, and it's called uh, Adam Resurrected. Uh, it stars Jeff Goldblum and uh, was directed by Paul Schrader. Uh, and then the second one was uh, made in 1975. It was directed by Arthur Hiller and stars Maximilian Schell. It's called uh, The Man in the Glass Booth. Uh, now, for me to actually discuss these movies in depth, um, I am going to have to spoil certain plot elements. And uh, in the case of uh, The Man in the Glass Booth, I will actually uh, be... There's a, a twist, uh, and I will pr- and I will be talking about that. So, so if you don't want to hear about it, uh, it's understandable... Um, again, these are not movies that everyone has seen, so, uh, so I'm just going to say spoilers now, uh, go, uh, go and seek those movies out, uh, they're both very much worth your time, and then, uh, you're welcome to come on back here and, and hear what I have to say about them, but, uh, but, uh, I'm going to continue, and, uh, here we go. So, Adam Resurrected, uh, it was based on a novel by, uh, Yoram, uh, Kenuik. Kaniuk, I don't know, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's K-A-N-I-U-K, uh, and it is about a, uh, it takes place in the, in the uh, late 30s, early 40s, 
uh, and a uh, a Jewish performer named uh, Adam Stein. Uh, he's very popular in Berlin. He's a magician. He uh, is a kind of a comedian, and he basically he runs a, a circus, um, not the circus you know that you think of like with a tent and all that. Uh, he it's it's in a it's in a theater. And he also, uh, the, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll preface by saying the, sh- the, 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 the movie is uh, a little crazy. It's very surreal at times, and there are certain things about Adam that are just strange. Uh, he seems to have ESP. He seems to be able to know things about people simply by uh, uh, touching a piece of their clothing or something like that. Uh, he can kind of read their thoughts or at least read what they're feeling. Uh, and so there's that. Uh, he seems to be able to make himself bleed uh, for uh, I don't know why. Um, and so, you know, uh, just go into the into the movie knowing that it's going to be very strange. And so he, of course, uses uh, both of these uh, very strange abilities uh, to very theatrical effect uh, in his show. So uh, so anyway. Uh, Adam is married and has uh, two children and uh, his his uh, wife and one of his daughters um, he has incor- he incorporates into uh, his show and he seems to have very uh, genuine affection for them uh, and then one day uh, he uh, goes out to the audience and and meets a young man who is plan- who he discovers was planning on killing himself. And so he, you know, tries to cheer him up and, and all that sort of thing. And so and seems to have, have, have done so. The, the man does not kill himself. Uh, and sure enough, uh, as, uh, you know, Hitler comes to power in Germany, uh, Adam, much like, you know, uh, a lot of the other Jews, um, is uh, Adam and his family are, are rounded up and they are sent to a camp. And... Uh, Upon arriving there, the man in charge of the camp, played by Willem Dafoe, uh, he is the man from the audience that was going to kill himself and that Adam basically saved. And so so the uh, the commandant decides, oh, I'm going to spare Adam's life. Here's what I'll do. Uh, he basically forces Adam to perform for him uh, all the time, and in doing so, Adam will save his own life. Uh, Adam is separated from his uh, wife and daughter, and then uh, his other daughter is elsewhere. And so uh, so he decides that, okay, I'll go ahead and perform for this guy, be his kind of his personal uh, entertainer, uh, because I might be able to curry favor and, and save my, my wife and daughter. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, the commandant requires that Adam act like a dog. Uh, and I don't just mean walking, you know, on your hands and knees and saying arf arf. Literally, no words, just noises, and basically has to do his best impression of a dog. Uh, otherwise, uh, he will, uh, you know, be killed. And so uh, I guess I, I, I can go back to something that I was talking about um, in the acting episode. Uh, something that perhaps I should have mentioned, though I, I'm, I'm almost positive that I talked about how important uh, a performer's commitment is uh, to their character. 
And uh, J- this is by far the best performance I've ever seen from Jeff Goldblum. Um, and I think he's a good actor. I feel like, uh, you know, he, he has certain mannerisms that people kind of uh, find funny. And um, and he he often uses it to, to humorous effect in, in movies like Jurassic Park and, and, uh, and such. Uh, but I think he's a very good actor. I really liked him in David Cronenberg's The Fly. Um, I think he's very talented, and, and especially these days, I don't think he's utilized very much. But I think his performance in Adam Resurrected is really uh, the best I've ever seen him. Uh, and it's because we see sides of him that, that we would never expect to see. Um, and I would say most notably, he has to, he's playing a character who is playing a dog. And he plays it as he should, which is with absolute commitment. It is fearless. I mean, he lets, you know, he drools on himself. He lets snot hang from his nose uh, because, you know, uh, he's supposed to be a dog and dogs aren't very self-conscious. And uh, the scenes, in, and what's uh, another uh, element to this is that uh, Willem Dafoe, as the Commandant, also has to be fearless, but in a different way. Um, because, you know, he has to, he treats Adam as if he were a dog. He doesn't treat him like, oh, well, he's acting like a dog, but I'll treat him like a person. Um, he treats him like a dog. So Adam will come up and kind of nuzzle the commandant's leg and, uh, Defoe pets him and like scratches his neck and scratches his head as if it, as if he were actually his dog. Uh, admittedly, these scenes are, you know, at first they're kind of, they're so strange that they're kind of funny, uh, and then they just turn very disturbing, uh, very emotionally, certainly, for, for both characters. Um, so, basically, Adam does this for a year. He lives as a dog, um, and but he also happens to play violin. And so, uh, the Commandant uh, gives him a break from acting like a dog so that he will go so that he can go play he can play violin for the uh the prisoners who are on their way to uh the gas the showers the the gas chambers and all that so you know large groups of them b- will be walking uh basically to their death and Adam is required to stand there and play the violin for them as they go and uh and at some point um adam finds that among the people in the group headed for the uh the showers uh are his wife and his daughter and he wants to go and save them but uh he is stopped by the uh a, a nazi guard and he just has to keep playing and of course he's crying and then that night as he goes back to being a dog um, he is howling with tears streaming down his face. Uh, it's really quite uh, horrifying. Um, and I will I will say uh, at this point that um, that I'm I'm des- describing the story in chronological order, but uh, it jumps around in time. But uh, but I'm just describing what Adam is going through uh, first. And so uh, as the war starts to end. Um, the commandant calls him in and says, you've been a good dog. Uh, here you go. And gives him these papers that he had confiscated uh, from a very wealthy uh, Jewish man who is now dead. And he basically gives this man's life to Adam, basically setting him free 
And so he can go back and he will have a lot of money. He'll have a lot of possessions. And even though his wife and daughter and daughter are dead, he can go and, and live a good life. And that to the commandant feels like that that's, you know, that he owes that to, to Adam. Uh, the, the commandant is, is a very strange character and Willem Dafoe of course plays him, uh, wonderfully, uh, Dafoe kind of specializes in playing characters with strange psychology as evidenced by, uh, his performance in Shadow of the Vampire, uh, the recent film Anti, uh, Antichrist. He's just, he's a, he's a fairly, uh, fearless performer as well and his willingness to play a character uh, who is so uh, generally unlikable, but also just definitely disturbed. Uh, there is something wrong with him. Uh, and Defoe's willingness to play him, um, much like Goldblum, you know, with, with total commitment, uh, is, is really a, a testament to, uh, to his abilities. So, so Adam, after the war, Adam goes and lives in this mansion, drinks a lot, uh, and then he finds and is there for years and he he never knows he never knew what happened to his other daughter um and so he's you know it's implied that he's spent a lot of money and resources looking for her but he doesn't know uh where she is uh and it's also clear that uh, word has gotten out uh through some you know somehow uh what Adam did uh during uh, the war to survive people know because he was, he was fairly famous before the war. Um, you know, at least he was famous in the city. Uh, and now everyone's like, Oh wow, this guy literally, you know, played violin while Jews were sent to their death. And this man acted like a dog so that he could survive. And, uh, and so he kind of lives in seclusion in this huge house because he realizes that some people, uh, uh, are kind of condemning and, and judging of him. Uh, and so he finds, so uh, at some point, uh, a friend of his comes in and says, hey, we found your daughter. And Adam uh, is excited, sort of, um, but he's also kind of ashamed uh, to go see her, but uh, eventually he does, only to find that uh, she has killed herself. And uh, she had been married, but she killed herself, and uh, and her husband uh, it acts much like, you know, a lot of people in Berlin. He acts very uh, condemning of Adam and what Adam had to do. And uh, and then in a very heart-wrenching scene, uh, Adam goes to her grave, which is fairly new, and uh, he just falls to his knees and just can't take it anymore. And he starts eating dirt uh, and just and just lays down on her grave crying um, because at this point he has now lost his entire family but with his oldest daughter uh, there's the added torture of knowing that she was ashamed that he was her father and ashamed of the things that he did uh, in order to survive and so at that point he pretty much goes crazy and is sent to an institution uh, in Israel that is devoted to um, helping uh, uh, to treat uh, Holocaust survivors that have, uh, you know, who, who now have mental illness uh, over the, you know, over the events that, that they've survived. So, uh, so while he's there, um, 
you know, we see how he how he deals with um with the the other not inmates, I'll say patients, the other patients and the doctors and that sort of thing. Um and he actually he he goes in and out of uh of this hospital um and it's clear that he's still I mean, he's just he's miserable. He is He's crazy, but kind of in a in a you know if you've seen one flew of the cuckoo's nest, you know who McMurphy is um the the Jack Nicholson character if you've seen the film uh he's kind of crazy in that way he kind of he has a tendency to rally the patients around him but uh and he he can be very charming and very funny, but he is clearly miserable and you know he wants to die and he you know, as I said before, he has the ability to make himself bleed, and so he will often do that and come very close to death. And so, uh, so the doctor that uh, that is treating him actually comes up with a fairly, uh, you know, innovative method. Uh, the doctor finds a young boy who acts like a dog, and. You never really know why uh, the kid is at this point. It's the early '60s, and the kid seems too is certainly too young to have lived through the Holocaust, and so you don't know what happened in his life. But this kid lives even more like a dog than Adam did because this kid is actually feral. It's like it's as if he was raised by wolves. You never really know what he's gone through, and so. Um, so the doctor feels that if you know if Adam sees this kid, perhaps uh, he will, because of his own experiences, he will try and help the child, um, and perhaps because and perhaps he's the only one that can help the child, and so uh, so the the a good portion of of the scenes in the hospital deal with Adam uh, trying to deal with this kid and. And which also means, in turn, dealing with his own experiences and his own choices. But what's interesting is that it is the way in which Adam deals with uh, the kid, who he eventually uh, names David. Um, you would think that he would treat him with total um, love and sympathy because uh, he can relate to him. But what's odd is how often cruel he is to the kid. And in fact, how cruel he is to other people. Um, and I think this is where uh, we will wind up talking about kind of some of the themes here. Um, but before I do that, uh, we're actually, I'm going to change things up a little bit. And uh, I will talk about uh, the second film today, which is called The Man in the Glass Booth. Uh, and it's directed by Arthur Hiller, and it stars uh, Maximilian Schell. Uh, it was based on a play by Robert Shaw, who is uh, an actor that I really like. He played Quint in Jaws, and uh, so he, he wrote this play and uh, wound up actually not liking the film version of it, but uh, but I'm a big fan. Uh, Maximilian Schell uh, was nominated for an Oscar for it, and rightfully so. Uh, the story of The Man in the Glass Booth uh, regards around, again... Uh, a Holocaust survivor who uh, he's a, an, a much older man now and uh, and he's living in New York and just kind of living his life but what's what's interesting is that the man is kind of obnoxious and he has kind of a strange very dark kind of uh, sense of humor and he sort of 
doesn't really torture his assistant. Uh, and by torture, I don't mean literal torture, of course, uh, or even psychological torture. He just is a very demanding boss uh, and just seems to be, I don't know, he's kind of not a very pleasant character to, to deal with. Um, and uh, he talks about uh, having lost his family uh, in the Holocaust to a particularly cruel guard um, and how much he hates that guard, but that he always uh, thought, uh, he always thinks about him. Uh, and then, through a weird uh, series of events, he is put under arrest um, as a uh, war criminal. Um, and it is revealed that he is, in fact, uh, or which is to say he's being accused of, you know, it's it's all alleged and, and that sort of thing. Um, he's being accused of being that guard. Uh, and so we start to view him a different way. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, uh, literally this guard, you know, killed this per you know, these people and then proceeded to live as one of them. It's very, you know, very strange. Uh, and so they put him on, they put him on trial. And what's odd is, uh, the, his behavior during the trial, he seems to take glee in the fact that he's being persecuted. Um, he said, he says things that provoke, uh, the jury, the judges. He, he just loves being he doesn't love being hated but he seems to take joy in bothering these people and and he becomes an even more unpleasant character and you wonder oh my gosh what a horrible person why is he doing this um and to the and and we we hate him at this point as well it's just you know he's he's terrible and and we and he pretty much freely admits being this guard and we wonder, man, this is, well, this is barely a trial at all. It seems like it would be guilty. You know, he, sh- he should be found guilty. But, uh, but what's interesting is that by the end, and this is, this is that twist I was going to tell, tell you about, uh, by the end of the film, it is revealed that he is in fact, after he has copped to all the stuff, that uh, that he's accused of, um, and he has really made everybody in the courtroom just hate him. Uh, it is discovered that he is in fact not the guard. He is who he you know who he was living as. He was and he is in fact uh, this Jewish survivor who lost his family to this cruel guard. And we start to view him in a different way. Why on earth would he? would he say that he is the guard? Why would he do that? It, it's so strange. Um, and what's more is like, not only would he not defend himself, but he would actually provoke people's hatred. Um, and then you get, then you come to realize that he feel he, he was the only survivor in his family and he has come to, hate himself for that. He feels so guilty for it that that he has start he has started to identify with the guard. He feels like he is somehow as responsible for his 
uh, family's death as the guard is who tortured them in the camps and and eventually uh, was responsible for their death. Uh, and so the opportunity to be punished for that in the in the case of you know this courtroom the opportunity to be punished for it was too good for him to pass up he had to do it and that's why he seemed to take apparent glee in provoking people and getting them to hate him because he finds you know he finds a certain perhaps a certain degree of justice in it you know finally now people hate him as much as he feels he deserves to be hated uh, and as as much as he hates himself and by the end of the film, this character who who even you know even when he wasn't accused of this, uh, we don't we never really cared for. He's revealed himself to be incredibly complex, and so deserving of our sympathy, because this thing that really wasn't his fault, which is the death of his family in the midst of these ter- horrible circumstances, he blames himself for it and to the point where he would be willing to be put to death he would be willing to be hated worldwide it would appear um and it's and it, by the end we just see him as just this very sad old man who you know quite frankly somebody who probably would have benefited from going to uh you know the hospital in Adam resurrected because he clearly the guilt has has gone all the way to his bones and he cannot function he functions just fine but mentally he just is so full of self-loathing that uh that it has you know taken away any kind of reason um uh, and any kind of rational motivation for doing things um and much in the same way, uh, we find ourselves wondering why, to go back to Adam Resurrected, we wonder, you know, why Adam, why he treats people so bad, uh, you know, in the in the hospital, and why he treats the, the feral boy so poorly, even though he lived just like him. Um, and again, we come back to that idea of guilt, um, that idea of self-hatred, you know, uh, any time that you outlive somebody and you feel like they died before their time and, and here you are, you lived and they didn't, what, why did that happen? Um, you know, you will start to feel guilty. And, of course, in the case of, of Adam, um, he actually has people telling him that what he did was wrong. Um, but, of course, they don't know that he acted like the dog so that he could try and save his family. Um and that he, when he was playing violin and saw his family walking by, um, he tried to save them then as well. And then when it became clear that he couldn't, the only thing he could do was survive. That's all he had left. And it's something that only people in that situation can understand. Um, and But still, and so he, I think he was able to justify it in the moment. Uh, but then when he found that uh his his oldest daughter also condemned him for what he did uh at that point he snapped and his his guilt that you know survival survival became the most you know uh, the most important thing for him uh and fair enough i think it probably would be for me as well um 
and but he felt that uh, what's worth surviving, you know, is it worth surviving if I lost the respect of my daughter who then killed herself uh, and I lost my family as well? What why what does it matter whether I survived or not? And so his guilt just overwhelms him and drives him crazy and it leads him to just kind of hate this young boy who so badly needs his help. Um, because that boy represents what he did um, and what he was willing to do, the thing that he hates himself so much for doing. Um, and then by the end of the film, uh, he comes to realize that that he can't let this guilt control him anymore. Um, and he actually... Uh, in a in a scene that is of course uh, fairly melodramatic uh, and a bit overwrought, uh, he confronts the commandant. The commandant is dead uh, at this point, um, but it's you know he's basically talking to a an hallucination or something like that. Uh, basically, it's just an inner an inner struggle that we're getting to see uh, manifest itself physically, where he's talking to the commandant and the commandant just is telling him that I am you now. You know, uh you can't get away you can't get away from me. And it's it's odd actually in that sense how similar this is to the man in the glass booth because in both cases uh the person uh that is tormented uh starts to not necessarily identify with their tormentor but they start to feel like their tormentor uh is is a part of them uh, to the point that uh, you know in Ma- in Man in the Glass Booth, Maximilian Schell's character uh, says he is him, uh, and so so what's fascinating to me is is these these portraits of of guilt and what it can do to a person, how it can just hammer at your emotions and at your psyche until you. Until the choices you make and, and the things you say, they almost don't even, don't make any sense anymore. Um, and what's interesting is in Adam Resurrected, he has to deal with his guilt before he can help this kid. Um, and that that to me, you know, this is almost kind of an an offshoot of of last week's uh, last week. I do this every few weeks now. Sorry. Everybody, I wish this was weekly, but somehow it's just not working out that way. Um, last episode, when I talked about up and and characters who need to get over the wounds of the past, well, this is another thing. You know, uh, the only difference here is that the wounds uh, either they are self self inflicted or they seem as if they are. They seem it's you know people trying to make up for something that they may that they did do or maybe they didn't do, but either way, they think they did. And they just dwell so much on the mistakes that they've made um, or just the way things have gone. And they feel so horrible about it that they are completely unable to move on. Um, Adam is confronted with a kid that he, more so than anybody else, is able to help. And he can't do it because he, because his guilt is paralyzing him. And, and what's fascinating, you know, I, to, you know, to, uh, go with, uh, examples from my own life, um, 
kind of an interesting story uh, about me. Uh, when I was six years old, my uncle uh, killed himself. Um, he was uh, doing a lot of drugs at the time, and uh, we're not really sure if he quite knew what he was doing at the, t- uh, at the time, but uh, he killed himself. And <laughs> uh, this is so sad, it's funny to me now, by the way. Not the fact that he died, but uh, my reaction to it as a six-year-old. Uh, apparently, I said to my parents, uh, uh, oh, I should have I been able to tell that this was coming, or I should have been, been able to see that he was going to do this. Um, now that's the kind of, that it's not unusual for people to, who, you know, who have a loved, you know, people that have, whose loved ones, uh, have, have killed themselves or something. It's not unusual for somebody to say, I should have been able to see this coming. It is, however, unusual for a six-year-old to say it. So it was off to a counselor for me. And, um, and I've, I'm, I'm somebody who, you know, as I mentioned before, I have certain, uh, melancholy issues. Uh, and guilt is definitely one of them. Uh, it really, uh, every, every mistake that I've ever made, every, uh, embarrassment that I've ever suffered, every, you know, stupid thing I've ever done, uh, you know, sometimes it just, there, there are days when somehow I just can't seem to get away from them. I somehow remember everything I've ever done and I am amazed that people that I know uh, don't remember them too. You know, there are times, and I'm, I don't know, maybe you've experienced this as well. Um, there are times when I, I just, when I think of myself, I just think of the sum of my mistakes. And I'm fascinated that other people don't see that. Um, and it's really astounding uh, to me. And so the the theme of guilt and how paralyzing it can be is one that really resonates with me. And I imagine it probably does for, for most people. Um, because you know, everybody's done stuff that they regret. Uh, and, and people sometimes feel like they should feel guilty about something. Um, and, uh, I don't think that's true, and as this is a Christian podcast, I will perhaps, uh, I'll give, I, I have some verses here in front of me, some Bible verses, um, talking about guilt, um, because guilt is never good. Um, conviction is good, and by conviction, if you are if you don't speak Christianese, um, conviction is not, of course, a, a legal conviction. Conviction literally means um, you're doing something wrong, or you've done something wrong, and you suddenly feel, you suddenly become aware that you that you've done something wrong, um, and the idea is that that you know you, people could you know you could say your conscience, but uh, you know Christian you know Christians think that that is uh, that that is God or specifically the Holy Spirit saying convicting you and saying hey that's wrong, and you need to fix it. And so a conviction, I, so conviction is okay because it spurs you on to be different. It spurs you on to do something different. And, um, and guilt only ever focuses on itself. It never requires you to do things, to change or to do things better. It only ever says, look at what you have done. That's it. It only ever looks at the past. It never looks really even at the present or the future. Um, and so it really, it, it serves, 
it serves no purpose, you know. And I mean, it's like if you feel if you've done something wrong and you feel kind of guilty about it, and then you go and do something about that, whatever it may be, whether it means apologizing to somebody or actually trying to make something that you've done wrong, uh, trying to make it right. Well, then it ceases. At that point, it ceases to be guilt, and it becomes just basic you know, a basic con- uh, conviction or, a, or a, you know, or just a mistake then. Um, but guilt is the, you know, guilt will get you to focus only on yourself. And, and then when you start to do something about it, the guilt will say, no, you can't do anything about it. It's too late and you should feel bad all the time forever. Um, and so, so I wanted to, uh, you know, if that's something that you're, dealing with, um, you know, hopefully, uh, I, have got some verses here that have always, uh, have always kind of helped me. Uh, and of course, you know, much like the thing last, uh, you know, last episode, uh, you know, I'm not over this, um, but I'm working on it. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so here we go. Um, Romans eight, one through two. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Uh, and then, uh, well, I'll just read all these and then we'll talk about them. Uh, Hebrews ten twenty two. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. First uh, John one eight through nine, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, and then, just in case uh, you know, here it talks about the forgiveness of sins and what you know, and to find out what that means, stay tuned. Psalms one hundred three eleven through twelve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Um, now, if you are listening to this and you're not a Christian, you know, uh, those probably uh, are not encouraging to you. Uh, because all of this is based on forgiveness of sins by God made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Um so, you know, uh, that's, that's not very encouraging to you. But what I will say is that even if you're not a Christian, guilt is still not good. I'm not saying like, oh, you, well, you should say it. You should continue to feel guilty uh, unless, of course, uh, you have uh, Jesus in your life, in which case, uh, knock it off. Guilt is never good. Guilt will never, you know, if you, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, it will never push you on to do the right thing. Um but if you are a Christian and you de- and you like myself, if you deal with issues of guilt, uh, these verses hopefully will give you a certain degree of comfort, and you may find yourself feeling one way. But it's good to keep these things in mind because, of course, feeling and thinking can sometimes be di- different things. In fact, I'd say often they are. You need to keep in mind that. God uh, has removed your sin from you, your transgression, as far as the east is from the west. That literally mean, literally means as far away as it can get. It's not in you anymore. You've been forgiven. It's done. 
and it's good to ke- it's important to keep that in mind you know in hebrews uh you know f- it, uh, let's see let us draw near to god with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience all right full we should have full assurance that means that we absolutely believe that god has done this the reason that we should believe that is because the bible has the bible tells me so i'm sorry to put it that way but um you just you got to just focus on this focus on what god has done and i know it's not easy i really know that i deal with it all the time and it is so exhausting in fact it is so exhausting that by the time it comes time you know when it comes time to do something positive you don't have the energy to do it and so you know just you look at a, a movie like Adam Resurrected and the man in the glass booth and you just see what these what guilt can drive a person to do it can drive a person to be cruel to others as stra- as insane as that may sound it can actually drive you to want to push others away. It can drive you to be distant from other people because if they want to draw close, you, of course, are always telling yourself, well, they just don't know the real me. The real me is this terrible person that has done these awful things. It can lead you to punish yourself over and over and over again. I remember reading the that, like... The the best kind of torture, by best I of course mean worst, is the kind where if you do it right, the person will continue to torture themselves after the actual torture is done. And that's what guilt is. It is self-torture. And what's amazing about Christianity for me is the fact that you don't have to do that anymore. In fact, you're actively encouraged not to um, because you've your transgressions your sins they're not around anymore they're gone Jesus put them on himself and died so that you don't have to I'm sorry to turn this into a basic gospel thing but that is that is the essence of Christianity and it was the idea of guilt that led me to accept Jesus. Uh, I was 16, and I remember I hated myself so much, as we all did when we were high schoolers. And uh, I remember I had a hard time making friends. Or I had, I had an easy time making friends, but I always kind of kept them at arm's length because, as I said earlier... I always felt like, well, they just don't know the real me. The real me is this terrible person. Um, and then uh, a youth pastor uh, happened to say one day, he just phrased it a certain way in which he said, God knows who you are, even if nobody else does. He knows exactly who you are and exactly what you've done. And he loves you anyway. And he sent Jesus for that specifically. Everything that you, you know, think of all the bad things you've done, lock it in your mind. That's exactly why Jesus came to die. 
and all you and all you have to do I say all you have to do is it's the, as if it's the easiest thing in the world. Belief is not easy by the way. And I realize, you know, it's like, oh, it's easy. All you got to do is this. Yeah, it can be the hardest thing in the world. Um, but if you if you accept Jesus and you accept his sacrifice, then those things are gone and there is no need to feel guilty. Um, and so I highly re- so I'm sorry to, you know, I, I'm still trying to find the balance of the podcast uh, in which I talk about the films, but I'm also talking about uh, Christianity itself. And, um, you know, uh, I go, I was listening back to one of the earlier episodes and I realized that, uh, you know, I didn't talk about the Bible or, or Jesus at all. And, and I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm still proud of those earlier episodes, but, uh, you know, and I may, there may be episodes where I do that again, where I strictly talk about the film or whatever. But, uh, lately, or at least the last few weeks, I've really, it's really been on me to incorporate, or it's just, you know, I find myself talking about films that deal with intensely spiritual issues. And so, um, so if I have turned any, if I've turned anybody off, uh, in the last few minutes, um, you know, I apologize for that. Um, I really do. A friend of mine said, uh, you shouldn't apologize so much for, for just sharing the gospel. Um, and I'm not apologizing for doing that. I just, I just don't want to alienate anybody. I want you to keep listening. Um, and, uh, and, you're always welcome to email me any questions or any comments that you might have. Uh, Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, go out and watch Adam Resurrected. Go out and watch The Man in the Glass Booth. Wonderful performances. Uh, Ad- Paul Schrader is a director that I happen to really love. Um, and so I-, I highly recommend both of them. And uh, again, I'll say with Adam Resurrected, be prepared for a very strange film. Um you uh, you're going to see a man acting like a dog. You're going to see a man who has ESP. Very strange stuff, but uh, but it's absolutely worth it. Um, so yeah, there we go. That's the episode. Uh, thanks everybody for listening again. Tyler at morethanonelesson dot com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. Uh, and uh, hey, why not uh, head on over to podcastawards dot com and vote for more than one lesson in the religion inspiration category. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's see if we can win this thing. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye.